What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And today's show is brought to you by the wonderful people who support this show via Patreon or via the Bestseller Academy. Uh, if you want to discover more about the Academy, you can have me and Mr. D as your personal coaches. You've got a great community there. Things are really happening with the Academy. There's courses. There's all kinds of extra material. Go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. And if you want to check us out and support us on Patreon and get all sorts of fun extra stuff, including loads of deep dive episodes, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And there's all sorts of buttons you can press there. Mr. D, is that a Glastonbury shirt I see you wearing? That is a Glastonbury shirt. It's nice. a uh, yeah, it's a Glastonbury shirt. I, I thought I'd wear it like in honour of all of the artists and uh, the incredible weekend. Did you catch any of it? Well, I did. I did, and I sent you a clip of Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney comes on and after two songs, he stops. It says, "Here we are at Glastonbury. Is where the magnetic ley lines inter- intersect." You know, I was like. Oh, Oh my God, he's talking about ley lines at Glastonbury. That's back to reality. I've got to, and I had to rewind it and then film it and then send it to you. So, anyway, <laughs> back to reality, officially endorsed by Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, um, yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah he's, no obviously com- he's obviously read it, hadn't he? Because, you know, for anyone wondering. Maybe he what, did. <laughs> maybe for anyone wondering what on earth we're talking about, well, um, if you've not read Back to Reality, go then get why a copy. Haven't you? And yes. well, yeah, firstly, why haven't you? Because, like, we wrote it, like, <laughs> like decades ago now Mark didn't we but if you haven't read it there's that's a very strong theme in the story and uh we had so much fun delving and he was actually standing on the pyramid stage as he said it Mark totally forecasting what was it called when somebody reference goes back it's not future casting what's the reverse of that Retcon- retro casting uh, i don't know yeah, but he yeah. actually Deja talked vu. about back to reality it was he kind of <laughs> he kind of masked it a bit um <laughs> the one thing there was there were no sign of any for anyone who has read the book um there was no sign of any farmyard creatures wandering around no. which i was very disappointed about actually to be honest yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a good it was a good uh it was a good festival. It's just, do you know what? It was just good to see crowds of people back out enjoying themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although, you know, um, I'm, I suspect I'm getting too old to do festivals or anything like that. I, I, I do like being able to watch Glastonbury at home on demand, very close to a toilet and a nice kettle for tea. Yes. Yeah, I've got to say, um, I'm not getting too old to do festivals. I'm getting too old to walk into those porter cabins <laughs> and I, if, if you're eating your breakfast i'm really sorry but like 
I mean, it's a rite of passage, isn't it? It's a rite of passage to be able to go in one of those, do your business and leave. Because honestly, most people go in there and by the act of going in there, they want to actually throw up and then run out. <laughs> it's absolutely grim. Now, when I, when I, when I play Glastonbury Mark, we did have backstage uh, toilets, you see, and actually it was the reason, it was the reason that I, I wanted to play Glastonbury. It was nothing to do with playing Glastonbury at all or the thrill of being on stage at Glastonbury or me to be able to talk about it on the podcast for many, many decades to come. It was actually the fact that they, <laughs> they had nice toilets. Like they didn't have, I mean, there's still porter cabins, but I think there was just less people backstage. So they didn't get quite as bad. <laughs> I must tell you though, there's, there's a porter cabin story in the book, which is still mm. one of my favorite. Uh, and we can say what it's called, can't we? Can we say what it's called? The Turdis? Do you remember that? The Turdis, you, yes. The Turdis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Genius, yeah. 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 So if if yeah. any if anyone wants to understand any Doctor Who hands out there, you gotta go go get back to reality. It's a good read. It's a good summer read. Good fun. And actually the audiobook is good to listen to whilst you're driving to your cat, you know, your campsite or your beach that you're yeah. going to. Um lots and lots of fun there. So Mr. Stay, talking of books. You've got a book launch coming up, haven't you? This is very exciting. Yeah, yeah. We've got a book launch this week, uh, Thursday, 7th of July at Waterstones in Canterbury. Now, all sorts of fun stuff happening. The, the cake toppers have arrived. So we're going to have cupcakes. We've got little edible cake toppers that are going to be on there. Uh, I'm going to be there. I'll sign your books. I'll do a little talk. Uh, you can have your photo taken with a wizard and a witch and a ghost. We're going to have a ghost there as well. That's going to be all sorts of fun. Uh, you can get your book stamped with the official Woodville Library stamp all kinds of good stuff but if you can't make it if you can't make it on the night or if you're overseas or you're doing you know whatever whatever reason we are going to be streaming it live on youtube uh so i'll put a link in the show notes so you can check that out normally we we stream it both on youtube and facebook but facebook convinced me to update my author page over to their meta business what's it doodah and that is incompatible with streamyard it seems so to Facebook, uh, it's going to be YouTube only, uh, which is fine. This is for anyone who's not released a book or done a book launch. This is all the stuff you have to look forward to <laughs> in years to come. <laughs> I've got to say though, Mark, every time every time you do another book launch, it always you always seem to kind of like up the stakes. And I've got to say, you've completely yeah. done yourself this time. A ghost, a ghost floating around Waterstones well, bookstore. It, yes, a ghost. Tell me there's no strings involved and yeah, um, pulley systems, please. Nope. <laughs> no, he's totally tell real. Me he's totally real. And uh, no, all will be revealed. How do you sign an agreement with the, with the local resident ghost of a bookshop? There is a ritual that has to be formed in the woods at midnight uh, with um, otter's blood. But I won't say <laughs> any more than that. Okay. Um, but it's all been done. Uh, it's all, all sorted. And oh. um, yeah, it's going to be fun. I've, uh, I had a meeting with a lovely filmmaker, a guy called Douglas Ray, um, who's got this little doodah that's going to allow us to do the whole, stream the whole thing live and switch between two cameras like it's top of the pops or something. It's brilliant. Uh, so uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could do it with like four cameras, but I decided, no, let's, let's keep it simple. We'll just go with two. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, going to wow. be really, really good fun. And you'll this be is... able to, if you're watching on YouTube, you can ask me questions. I'll, I'll ask, I'll answer your questions. It's going to be, it's, it's interactive. The only thing is you're going to have to provide your own cake and beverage, but you know, hey ho. Well, I mean, you know, 
I guess I guess people uh, <laughs> can you drink alcohol in in bookshops or is that the opportunity to oh, yeah drink no absolutely a- really so you can actually have a have a have a bevy whilst yeah yeah well what's what stands are all fully licensed you know they've uh, they they run on cheap plonk you know every every book event since the you know since I was doing them in the 90s it's like pop out to Tesco's get six bottles of the cheapest vino you can get uh and then back you come so yeah wow. absolutely I'm yeah, way behind yeah. the time so you can't even I mean over in over in Canada you know it's very different you can't drink out in public and you know you've got to have the brown paper bag if you bought something from the off license or the, <laughs> the liquor really? store as okay. they call it yeah. Oh, enough. excellent. Oh, I'm, I'll, I'll be I'll be tuning in online then with my with my bevy of choice. Sir. Fantastic. Well, best of luck with that. Lovely. And as always, you know, this is a this is a over what, what the oversharing we like to call it, don't we, on the show, which is something we'll experience today in our interview. But <laughs> oh. we're all about we're all about oversharing, and um, you know, Mark's really the the kind of bestseller experiment guinea pig when it comes to book launches. So no <laughs> doubt we'll hear all about it uh, next week, Mark, won't we? And um, or the week after, and then and then you know you can learn from all of the great things. Find out if the ghost did make an appearance, uh, and yeah, it's all good stuff. <laughs> but we've got a cracker of an interview today, Mark, haven't we? It's an absolute humdinger. This is this is a standout interview for for many 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 unique and different reasons. So tell us about our incredible guest today, David Lee Stone. This, I think this is one of my favourite interviews ever because it really surprised me. And funny enough, this this came from Martin Latham at Waterstones in Canterbury who dropped me a line and said, you need to talk to David. He said, he's very keen, very keen. Uh, so I got in touch with David. Now, between 1998 and 2016, David was writing fantasy and YA books for some of the biggest publishers in the world. This was the Ilmore Chronicles for Disney and Hodder. He had a series called Gladiator Boy and Undead Ed for Hodder and Penguin. Uh, Davy Swag and Outcast for Hodder. Uh, they've been, you know, sold all over the world, all over the world. Um, but it all started uh, with, um, and I mean, this ticks so many of your boxes, but, you know, it all started with things like the, the fighting fantasy books and what happened. Have you? Um, so we discuss, among other things, and strap yourselves in, folks, because this is such a good one. We discuss the role that a dental surgery waiting room played in David's career, why a big advance from a publisher is not necessarily a good thing, and even when publishing chews you up, spits you out, there is always hope. Brilliant. All right, folks, are you ready for this? Take a seat, get yourself a cup of tea. <laughs> And, and listen to this incredible interview with Mark chatting to the bonkersly amazing David Lee Stone. Mm. David Lee Stone, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm, I'm amazing today. I'm a bit tired, but I, I, other than that, I'm great. Well, I've, <laughs> I've seen your Instagram, so I think I, think I prefer the tired David Lee Stone because the energy you put into promoting your books is something something to see, folks. Do, we'll put, stick a link in the show notes. Check out David's Instagram. But you're very energetic when you're selling your books. You're very passionate, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a, a huge oversharer, and I, I always have been, and I've always had to be reined in. I'm either reined in by my wife, my kids or my publishers, whoever they are at the time, it's like I'm always told to try and tone it down. But I wake up really early in the morning with loads of energy and I run. I run straight away to get to the coffee. So I run to the next town to have a Costa. And after that, I actually calm down a bit. So I'm all right. <laughs> well, look, let's let's start with the, the latest and greatest. Tell us about the Vanquish trilogy, uh, which are uh, 
at the time that this is coming out, the second book is out now. And these are, I believe, in the Ilmore universe. So tell, tell us about these and and uh, and where they stand in your oeuvre. Yeah, okay. It's it's kind of hard to, to talk about the, the trilogy that I've got out at the moment without to, uh, uh, alluding a little bit to the past in that I once had a very, very large and incredibly well-backed series uh, by by some of the biggest publishers in the world, and the series didn't do very well. So what happened was the three. It, it was six books, and the and the three books that I was proudest of, they didn't have an audience because by the time we got to the books that were really well reviewed, the audience had kind of meandered away. So kind of nobody saw these books. Right. So this trilogy is finally done the way I wanted it to be done. I'm hugely proud of it. And also love the fact that very few people have actually seen it. So it, it presents as a brand new series. And obviously I've polished it up. I've added uh, additional material. So it's kind of the books I always wanted people to read. And unfortunately, as, as it went, I, mean, I was very lucky, but they ended up reading the other three. <laughs> so this is a trilogy that stands on its own, a fantasy trilogy set in a, a fantasy universe, uh, I started writing um, with a Terry Pratchett way back at the beginning with a lot of support from Terry, uh, who gave me great advice and kind of pushed me forward. So that's this, this it's sort of Discworld, Lankmar, uh, Xanth. It's comic fantasy, um, a lot of British humour, sort of Monty Python in fantasy land, if, if that's mm-hmm. a, an okay description. It is indeed. And so you've got uh, Shadow of the Shapeshifter, and The Venom of Vanquish, uh, the first two parts of the Vanquish trilogy out there. So do check those out. And again, we'll put links in the show notes to these. But I want to go, you've you've sort of skimmed through a lot of the key points in my notes. You know, this massive deal, Terry Pratchett, all of this stuff. Uh, let, let's go back and unpack all this because it is an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary roller coaster. Um, so let's go back to where it all started you were writing when you were a teenager weren't you? you you were sort of captivated and you were like me you were a big terry fan as well weren't you yes yeah, so 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 basically i i realized i was a bit different from the other kids around the last year of primary school in that i was the only kid in the class that had never read a book and i kept this secret i kept this secret and pretended i was reading but actually i thought there was something wrong with me because i could never finish a book even books that other kids love like the hobbit that was sort of aimed at, at younger readers and that that other kids seemed to have no problem getting through i just couldn't sustain the interest the only books that held my interest were the fighting fantasy books right. by steve jackson and livingstone so i could really get into those but i couldn't read a book and I was starting to feel like there was seriously something wrong. You know, I didn't do very well. So I, I, I failed my Kent test, uh, or should I say I didn't pass my Kent test. So I always always felt like um, I, I was sort of, I felt like an underachiever and I felt like I was different to other people, but I could bluff well. So I could pretend that I was reading and that I had no problem with it, but I couldn't actually do it. And then one day I had this broken hearted moment. I had three pounds pocket money a week. And I used to go down every week to WH Smith and I used to get the latest fighting fantasy book because they were the only things that I could read and I loved them. So this one fateful day, and it was the day when all the prices changed, I go down to WH Smith with my three pounds and I take the book up to the counter and the lady looks at me with kind of kind eyes and says, 
I'm afraid they're three ninety nine now. Oh love. no! I, 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 honestly, I can, I can still feel the tears welling up oh. because it was my. I, it was really tough. I had no friends at all at the time, so it was my whole weekend was reading these books, and I wandered around Smiths with my three pounds, looking for anything that I could read that I might have a chance of playing another game book. The only book in the entire shop that I could afford was a book by Terry Pratchett called Eric. Oh. And it was only because it was a tiny yeah. little uh, Golanx edition that was like two ninety nine, And I bought it just because I thought, I have to do something this weekend. I might be able to read a tiny book. Mm. Well, I read it. And the rest really is history. I fell in love with Terry. I read his entire canon very quickly. And then other comic fantasy authors. Then I started writing to Terry and basically sending him stories and constantly asking him to look at stuff. And he's saying to me, because Terry was actually amazing at, at replying to, to readers way before they became writers. So he, yeah. he was always encouraging me when I was saying, I'm going to quit. I'm not getting anywhere. And he would say, the ones with the Duracell batteries last longer. Come on, there's no excuse. <laughs> so, um, we're just about when I was about to junk my first book, actually, Terry said to me, there's no excuses. There was no market for A Color of Magic when I first went into comic fantasy. You need to keep going and grow a thicker skin. So, and I've still got that letter. It's one of my favorite, favorite oh, wow. possessions. And, uh, and so I kept going and it was ultimately that book that ended up selling in such a big way. And I was uh, so lucky with so yeah, that was the sort of, that's how I started. And uh, from Terry, I went on to Douglas Adams, who his agents eventually became my agents. So I was very, very lucky in that I, I think I accidentally stumbled upon brilliant writers to begin with as influences. Okay, that's all incredible stuff. And again, you're skipping ahead a bit because I want to talk about Knights of Madness. And if you're watching this on YouTube, folks, over David's shoulder, you'll see a copy, Knights of Madness, which was a short story anthology that came out in 19, 1998. It has the classic Josh Kirby cover art, which was, you know, who did all of Terry's cover art at the time. You were in an anthology with Terry Pratchett, Ray Bradbury, Spike Milligan, Tom Sharp, and it was your story, The Dulwich Assassins. First of all, how did that come about? And what was that moment like seeing your name amongst those, you know, legends? Well, actually, this is probably an incredible story for writers, I guess, looking back, because how it happened was it was really quite shocking. Uh, so I couldn't get anywhere. With I was sending books to publishers. I was like 13 years old at the time. So then I realized that the only way to get forward or to actually get published was with short stories. So I wrote this short story, but it didn't fit in the big magazines like uh, Interzone or Asimov's. You know, everybody, I got rejected by absolutely everybody because I'm writing funny fantasy story. So finally, this is, this is exactly the story, the way I heard it, and this is the way I believe it happened. Finally, um, I decided to send to a tiny small press magazine called uh, Xenos, which was run by a couple who lived in a house in Bedford together. And they ran this little magazine and every month they produced it themselves. And every month it had six stories. And then the following month it would have another six stories and then people's opinions on the stories from the month before. Right. You didn't get paid. It was a no pay deal. It was just, you got your story published. Hmm. So I sent my story off. They loved it. It was called the Dulwich Assassins. Um, it went into this little magazine and as far as I understand, 
At the same time as this happened, Peter Haining, who was this veteran anthologist, he's done so many anthologies, and he worked very closely with Terry Pratchett. He was looking for the new Terry Pratchett, supposedly, to finish. He had a series of anthologies. The first was The Wizards of Odd, then The Flying Sorcerers, and finally he was doing this one called Knights of Madness. He wanted to start the book with Terry, and he wanted to end it with a new, younger writer, who was like Terry. Well, of course, he goes to the bookshops and there are no writers like Terry Mm. and there are no up-and-coming writers that are like kind of new comic fantasy writers. So he's sort of at a loss and he thought, well, okay, I'll end the book with maybe another reprint from somebody else. He's in a dental surgery. This is the way I heard it. He's (laughs) in a dental surgery in Bedford and they happen to carry a copy of this little local magazine. (laughs) So he reads it, finds my story, writes to me and says, you know, what about, would you like to be in an anthology with Terry Pratchett? (laughs) Either that, either that, or he spoke to Terry and Terry said, you know, I know this kid. He writes to me all the time. He's a real pain. (laughs) So that is how we got in the anthology. And of course, the anthology ended up being published by Orbit in the UK, Penguin in America. It was just massive because Mm. of Terry, of course. Mm. Um, and Woody Allen in America. I think Woody Allen was the headliner in America. Terry was the headliner here. So there's lots of different versions. But being in a book with Terry Pratchett is definitely still the highlight of my career because I, I I still adore, I adore Terry. I think uh, he's the greatest writer there is. And and yeah, I adore him. Well, I'm I'm with you on that. I am definitely with you on that. And uh, it's, um, well, behold, behold my bookshelf, top row. Terry gets the top row. Um, that is a stunning bookshelf as well, I have to say. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, Mutual Appreciation Society. I'm enjoying yours as well very much. Now, from there, you said you got, just happened to drop in that you got Douglas Adams' agent, which was Ed Victor. How do you get Ed Victor as your agent? That's uh, I'm sure there's a story there. This is the, this is the thing where I, I always say to, to writers that, it, things that you think don't matter can spiral. So it's all off this tiny magazine again. So we've gone from the dental surgery, we've gone into Nights of Madness, and suddenly I'm in an international a hardback and paperback anthology, and I have a novel, and Peter was kind enough, and, and, and my God, he's probably responsible for most of my career. He was kind enough to say in the British version, and Dave has just finished a novel, and he, he named the novel, which I think the time was called After the Organist, um, and so uh, the agents who were sort of looking around at the time were like, oh, okay, this is interesting. This, this guy is supposed to be like the new Terry Pratchett and he's got a book and he's very young. So, uh, I think one agent approached me that was very, a very, very small agent and said, uh, I'd like to look at your book, but then she didn't like it. She actually wrote back and said, oh, I don't think it's very good. It's not something I can. So I got kind of really down and I thought, oh, I'll send it to as many agents as I can I can send it to. And I got two replies. One was from Christopher Little, who had just taken on JK uh, Rowling. So the whole Harry Potter thing was just about to explode. And the other one was Dead Victor. And I looked at these two agents and I knew about Harry Potter. Obviously, Harry Potter was, so we were around about, I can't remember. We might have been on the first Harry Potter book or the second, mm-hmm. but very early. Right. So I knew about Harry Potter, but then I, from Ed Victor, I, Douglas Adams was my hero, as like Terry was. So immediately I thought, well, if I go with Ed Victor, I, I know that they will get my humour. They will understand what I'm trying to do. And so 
I, I went with the Ed Victor agency and was very, very, very pleased that I did. They were incredible, an incredible agency. Yeah. So well, I was very lucky again. It's luck, really. Well, I, I think there's a lot of persistence going on there as well. And this is, um, I think persistence is is key to your story as well. But let's talk about Ed and he gets you this incredible deal, the Ilmore Chronicles. Uh, there's a deal with Hot Headline. There's a deal with Disney. Tell us, tell us how that all, all panned out. So at the same time as I'm writing, there's really no proof. There's this one piece of proof that I can actually write and that I can write something that's good. And it's the anthology. But as time goes on, this sort of loses weight and becomes, was it just a single piece of luck? Yeah. So I'm with Ed Victor and Ed Victor is trying to sell my book and it's not happening straight away. And it's actually Sophie Hicks at Ed Victor. She did everything for me. So so it was still, obviously I, I met Ed and knew Ed, but it was Sophie really that, that did this. I'm still working at Blockbuster Video at the time, right? So, right? so I've got a minimum wage job. I've got two disciplinaries against me, one for talking to a customer with a glove puppet. So I'm not exactly, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not exactly covering myself in glory in my personal life. I'm giving a lot of my wages back to my mum and nan because I live with them. And I'm trying to... Uh, I'm, I'm basically trying to climb up the ranks at Blockbuster, but I couldn't get further than the, the bottom rung because I wasn't very good at the job. <laughs> um, so at the time, at this one day, and this is when everything happened and it all changed uh, for me, I, I knew the book was out there and I knew that, that the agents were trying to get all these deals. But basically, I'd done this one Saturday morning, I think it was. It might have been a Friday where I was, uh, I'd just got into trouble because I'd filled a, a section at Blockbuster with the best of Jean-Claude Van Damme and left it empty because <laughs> I thought it'd be fun joke to say he's never made anything that anyone would want to watch. And I thought it, was, it would be hilarious, but I was getting a disciplinary basically from the manager at the time. And the phone goes and I'm like, okay. So I picked up the phone. He's like, it's for you. It's, it's uh, your agent or something. Now, I had read earlier that morning that there was this deal done, which were, had broken all the records. I think in, in total with Disney and Hodder and everything, it was, it was around about a million. It was, it, it was just huge. And I remember actually thinking, wow, you know, that's going around the news. It's going around the forums that this incredible deals are done. I'm like, that's, that's, that's absolutely amazing. And then I get this call saying, look, it's you. you. The Ilmore Chronicles has sold in the biggest way possible. You have to get out of the building. The press know about it. Uh, you need to call your mum and dad, uh, your mum and dad, uh, nan. You need to tell your partner. My girlfriend at the time worked at Blockbuster with me. <laughs> so we're, we're standing there. And then I, I, I'm starting to think, oh, well, how quick do I need to get? So I'm saying to the manager, well, I kind of need to leave because – the, the press is about to talk about this huge deal and, and it's mine. It's my book is sold. And, and he said, well, can you at least finish the shift? <laughs> <laughs> so I did the rest of the shift in the back room. So I was like, uh, yeah. So it was kind of incredible, but yeah, the book sold around the world. It, it sold to Hodder in the UK, uh, Disney in America, Sony in Japan. And I didn't even know there's Sony. I thought Sony was a games company, yeah. but it was Sony in Japan. And I think Buena Vista in Italy, and then it just it just kept going, and it it went from me literally like working on the shop floor in Blockbuster to I think I was on TV within a week, you know, talking about this. It was just it was crazy. It was actually crazy. I want to talk about that because you were quite young, were you? You were what twenty four, twenty five when the deal happened. Uh, 
were you ready to cope? No, I, I, I think the only thing that went in my favour was that we had literally never had any money. Right. And I wasn't a spendy guy. So fortunately, I, I, I didn't I didn't go crazy, but I certainly wasn't ready um for the change of lifestyle, uh, for the isolation. I thought I would really, really enjoy sort of at that level. And they're talking to you all the time and they and they want more books. And the books are never the way you want them to be presented. I, mm-hmm. I never really liked any of my covers. Um, I never really, and, and I would say occasionally, like say to, to Terry Pratchett, well, you know, I don't, I don't like the covers. And, uh, he, he did send me this email once and said, uh, well, why don't you just say no? And, mm. and I was like, but yeah, but you can't really do that unless you're you, <laughs> you know, you go, you don't <laughs> just get the book and go, no, do another cover. You don't really have that. Now I have the choice with Kingsbrook, but I didn't before. So, um, it, it, yeah, I wasn't ready for it at all. I'm I'm mentally certainly not ready for it. It was a it was a shock, and um, I remember I watched sometimes very occasionally I watched back the Rich and Judy um, the, the episode that I was on, and she says something to me like, uh, "Do you do you think you can cope with rejection now?" And I say, "Oh yes, yes, I think I can now." I've never been able to cope with rejection, mm. and I've always felt like a failure regardless of how well the books did. Uh, it's just something I think that's in me. But if you're the wrong type of person, then writing is is tough, really, really tough. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. cracky. There's a lot to <clears throat> unpack there because it's it's the curse of the big advance, isn't it? I, I think this is one of these uh, we've discussed this on the podcast before, where you know it's you see these deals in the trade press and sometimes in the mainstream press as well, where you know. And sometimes it is a young author who gets a six-figure advance and you think, wow, that's it. They're off to the races. But that the curse of the big advance is there are huge expectations at that point. The It has to be a smash hit on a level with Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, J.K. Rowling, that kind of thing. And, of course, if it doesn't meet those expectations, it can, it can create – a really kind of toxic atmosphere where suddenly you're a, you know, it, it, it can create problems with a the publisher. They kind of think, oh, we've overpaid. I mean, how did that all pan out for you? And I, I saw as well Disney as well, you know, in the States, they had very high expectations. You're very young. You're going on Richard and Judy, you're having to do TV. Probably, I imagine they didn't give you much media training either, you know. So, um how did how did that you know how was the first book received and were there any sort of warning signs that it it you know what were the what were the highs and lows of the, of that whole period well you're exactly right in what you're saying so the first thing to say is that the the book bombed so so i know exactly what it's like from this side i mean and it bombed and the the thing that shocked me was that the the the, the, the reviews were fantastic so we got five star reviews in all of the trade magazines we got five star reviews in the genre magazines like sfx uh, we did really, really well on the reviews. So I thought we'd, we'd probably be okay. The book tanked. Now, when I say tanked, it sold 100,000 copies. <laughs> right? So it sound, that sounds like, it sounds like an amazing figure. I, but I, I worked it out once. That um, The only reason I felt okay with this is when I went to, they invited, Disney invited me to America to this uh, massive book expo where the keynote speaker was like Bill Clinton. 
He was like, we had Bill Clinton, Jamie Lee Curtis, and then Ed Greenwood, who was like my real hero because he created Dungeons and Dragons campaign setting. Yeah. Uh, Greyhawk, I've forgotten realms. So, so he was my, so I was looking at him thinking, wow, that's Ed Greenwood. (laughs) And everyone else is like, yeah, can you see Bill Clinton over there? And like Jamie Lee Curtis. No, (laughs) doesn't matter. But I was in a lift with lots of other authors who'd got advances at the same time as me. And we were sort of talking quite openly about their advance, you know, our advances. And I realized I was the tiny fish when it came to America. They'd been given four million, five million. And then one of them said, and this is what we need to sell. And I just listened to the figure and thought, oh, I'm dead meat. I, I am dead meat. And of course, the the book sold less and less and less and less. Mm. So I eventually had a best-selling series, but it wasn't Ilmore, and it wasn't from a big advance. It was from a tiny advance, and I realized that's what you need. So I I think I've probably been paid more on advances than some of the best-selling authors in the world, and I I might only be one of the – I might be one of the only guys that's never earned it. I mean, they must look at me as a complete loser in the the sense of uh, I've never earned out, I don't think, on a a book of – I worked in book selling and publishing for 25 years, and very, very few of those big advances actually earn out. It's astonishing. It's one of the reasons they don't really happen that often anymore. It's uh, particularly in the in the sort of 90s and, and noughties as well. There were, it, you know, it was usually down to an editor's discretion, and they could go a bit crazy with the advances. That doesn't happen now. There's a there's a very different uh, procedure in order, and it's a lot more scientific uh, in terms of comparing to similar titles. Um, but uh, it, it happens very very rarely now. But it, yeah, people will go a bit crazy. C- can you are you able to tell us how much you've got? Are you willing to sort of talk about that? How much that? How much it was? It, sorry, yeah, I'm only I'm a massive overshare. I'm willing to talk about anything. What do you mean specifically? And what what have got in terms of what? And the advance for the 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 first deal that you got with Ilmore, right? So so Ilmore was five hundred thousand from Disney. Uh, that was that was a flat fee. So flat fee of five hundred thousand from Disney. Um, now sixty thousand and seventy five thousand respectively from Hodder. So this is all to the same books we're talking about. Yeah. So that takes it to a, a, a roughly about seven hundred thousand. I think and about four hundred thousand around the world from the other. 19 publishers i think right and then we've got the bbc deal because the big the thing about having a shark agent is that they <laughs> they split all the rights up yeah. so when you hear about these huge advances you've got you think wow now they own everything no not if no. you've got a shark agent the bbc got the audio rights right. so they got because uh, i was thrilled that Crichton from red dwarf read my first book i was so happy <laughs> And uh, it was going to be Jonathan Creek. It was going to be Alan Davis turned up to do this uh, reading. for, the, And I was really excited because I love Jonathan Creek, but he mm. so, he did something bad. I don't know what he did. He must have blown it but because it <laughs> went to Robert Llewellyn. But um, yeah, so it was it was over a million in the end. Um, so, but that was the last, the problem is because you've got a really good agent, the deals don't change that much. So I think for Davy Swag, I got 25 grand. Right, and that was a that sold five thousand copies. That book less, I think it sold about four. It was my best reviewed book at the time, and I think it sold about four thousand eight hundred and something copies. Right. But the same sort of level of big punching advances with 
it was only when the advances dwindled. Finally, they worked out. They were like, God, this guy's a lame horse. Stop giving him money. Because I would go to Hodder, the big parties, like the big summer parties, and I would think, why doesn't anyone like me? I must, I'm, I'm, oh. people, people are not, they don't seem to be just like it. They don't seem to be want to talk to me much just because they're all going, look how much we gave him. He hasn't earned a penny. <laughs> So it's kind of like that. And it was only when we got to Gladiator Boy, hilariously, they paid something like three grand for the mm. first uh, three Gladiator Boys. And that went straight into the chart and exploded. So Gladiator Boy ended up selling, I think, quarter of a million. So okay. that was. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about that because um, that that's heartbreaking and i've seen it happen to authors as well where they get the big advance and it doesn't earn out and it's true the publisher thinks oh god you know that was a mistake uh, we've got to move on kind of thing so you must have been in a very weird place in that you got the, got the cash that's great cash the check but you're you know the respect you're getting from your publisher the attention you're getting from your publisher perhaps isn't you know there's no did you ever feel like oh god this is the end i it may have screwed my career as an author. And how did Gladiator Boy come out of that? How did you get out of that 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 funk? I, I think one of the worst things, I've said this uh, quite a few times, actually, I think one of the worst things in publishing is the ghosting. Uh, nobody tells you, nobody yeah. tells you that you're done and that your career is over. You kind of have to guess it. And it's. I do think that is incredibly low. Mm. And especially if you've got an agent in, in between and, I always wanted to be a writer. So I think there's this whole, because of all the advances and stuff, there's this whole thing that that is the thing that matters. And it's not. If you want to be a writer, you want your work to be liked. So suddenly the money becomes completely irrelevant uh, and you you sort of feel like a failure. Uh, and especially if your stuff's well-reviewed, it's it's kind of difficult to understand. But But what happens is your advances dwindle away, but then you can have these surprise hits but I would say a lot of the times it's publishers trying to milk things for everything they're worth that is the problem. So when I just said earlier on, I've never had a, a, a series that's earned out. Mm. And then I just said about Gladiator Boy that we sold a, a, like a quarter of a million copies. Well, once again, three books come out. They do it outstandingly well. So they order another three. Yeah. They do outstandingly well. Suddenly I've got a 15 book deal. Right. And when I looked at when I looked at Gladiator Boy, I actually said to the editors, you know, are you sure? I know it's done well so far, but 15 books is a lot. Are you sure we're not going to end up, you know, in a bad place again? Sure enough, over 15 books, we end up completely remainded. Doesn't work. Oh. It's just it, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> um my career actually ended when I was on the Isle of Wight. I got an email pretty much saying that my latest book was proving very difficult to sell. And I did actually have a breakdown shortly after that and ended up in therapy and psychotherapy, you know, basically trying to put my head back together again because, I, you know, I left school with no qualifications mm -hmm. pretty much whatsoever. I was terrible at school. I was very truant. 108 sessions out of 110, one, one term, I think. I was away. I was out. <laughs> Um, so I, you sort of look and think, I thought I was a writer. Now I'm whatever I was at the time. I was 30, 30 something years old, 30, late thirties. And I thought, what do I do now? I'm not a bloody tennis player. You know, I might have enough money that I've managed to make my family secure. And I'm very fortunate for, through that, but you sort of think, how am I going to fill my days? This is, yeah. this is what I do. Fortunately, I'm really lucky. My wife gave me a job. Otherwise... <laughs> 
I, I pack boxes for uh, we've got a pet company um and and I pack boxes during the daytime so I found a great job that I love but otherwise I'd have been in trouble <laughs> actually can can you talk about that just that thing of having having something having a job like that where that it's grounded and and gives you somewhere to to go from to, can you can you talk about that and and how, what's your writing day look like now and I'd like to talk about your company Kingsbrook Publishing and how that's come about so uh cuz that's I think this is more common than publishing is willing to admit that uh I remember when Orion moved offices we moved from uh sort of uh, Covent Garden over to to um uh, Blackfriars, and we were clearing out uh, filing cabinets. And I would get old catalogues out, and you, it would be full of the names of authors who were bright, shining stars, and then just aren't writing anymore. And it was, it was really heartbreaking. And it is a big pro- problem with publishing in that they, and they can chew you up and spit you out, and then onto the next bright, shiny thing. You know, how have, you've had you talked about therapy. But with Kingsbrook, you've sort of taken back control of your destiny, if you like, as a writer. Was that? Did it take you a long time to get to that point? And what was that journey like? A, a, a very long time. I think one of the problems of having an agent, and and it's why I, I, it's it's not a great thing at the moment. One of the problems of having an agent is. So you never know that your career is over because in a lot of cases, especially if you've had quite a big career and a big, you know, a, a, a very public career, you, your agent, your publishers, it's kind of not in their interest to say bye or to make some kind of official statement in case something happens in the future. And in my case, I had a lot of rights. You know, you can imagine with all, all, of, the, all of the projects around the world, there's a lot of publishers involved, a lot of rights. Yeah, I, It never occurred to me to get my rights back. Right, yeah. and no I one think tells this you is that. something. Yeah. Nobody tells you that, yeah. and you also think if I ask for my rights back, there's going to be some kind of phenomenal fight, and I'm going to end up in court. And I think it was only when I realised that I was prepared to fight, and and and, and I should say that Hachette were amazing about this. Right. You know, they they didn't fight me at all. They recognised what was going on with me, and. I got all my rights back. I got my rights back from Disney. I got all of my rights back and I started obviously Kingsbrook. So my wife, it, I've, I've been very, very lucky. My wife is a business entrepreneur. She started a pet brand uh, called Hubinu, which uh, we did dog tags and various other things. And it was it's hugely successful. And my wife has always said, we should do publishing the, uh, the problem. And I said, no, you can't. You can't just you set up your own publishing company. You know, it'd be impossible to get into places like Waterstones, which she's proved wrong. Yeah. <laughs> she's, so so she's um she's done all this and and kind of set Kingsbrook up. But it, it is very uh how can I say the writer, you really kind of need to take the initiative for yourself and, and make the assumption because I know far too many writers, and a lot of them are with major publishers or were who are frightened to have this conversation with their agent. So they just go on day after day waiting for emails that never come, mm. looking at other authors, maybe feeling resentful, can't understand why they're on the shelves and they're not. They're, 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 they're kind of wounded, but they don't know it. It's over, but they don't know it. Mm. So that's, I, I would say, have that conversation with your agent if uh, if things aren't going the way that you need them to go. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, a lot of this career is about having difficult conversations. And I think once you've had them, 
there's such a relief. It's such a you know, it's, it's such a weight off. But look, tell us about King's book because this is a, this is the rebirth. This is you know the next chapter. Uh, you know, you've started this incredible publisher. Uh, you've got these two books and more to come. Tell us about uh, King's book and what's happening there. Well, so I got the rights back to all my books, and I thought. I wonder what would happen if I did this uh, kind of my way. I, I, I mean, obviously, Kiara knows a lot about business. She she set set the whole thing up. Uh, I haven't. I don't claim to have done any of this apart from writing the books, um, approving the arts, and and basically doing the the creative bit my way. Um, Kiara has all, had all the discussions, all the meetings. It turns out that a lot of these uh, sealed doors that you imagine between you and the major publishers are not sealed doors. And I had a, a really interesting conversation that started Kingsbrook really um, uh, with a friend of mine who said, uh, oh, why, why wouldn't you start your own publisher? And I said, I could never hope to sell the kinds of numbers that, that the major publishers uh, sold. And then I looked at some of my favorite books, <laughs> the ones I was really proud of and thought, well, actually, do you know what? They didn't sell that many of those. <laughs> so I could probably hit that number. So really that started the whole conversation with, okay, how do we how do we professionally publish a book? How do we make it so that it looks it doesn't look out of place in Waterstones? How do we make it so that it can get into Waterstones and other bookshops, independent bookshops? How do we do it professionally? And it turns out that if you put in all the work, I mean, you know, you've done incredibly well. I see your book everywhere. Everywhere I go around <laughs> to see my book, I see your book right next to it. I was in, um, I thought, is it her, mate? Yeah. All you, you you need, obviously, a good a good book, you know, which you've got, which I've got, hopefully. Um, you, you need a great cover, which we've both got, yes. and you need the right conversations. And mm. that's it. You Suddenly, you can compete. You might not be able to flood the bookshops, with as many copies, but I've been told very recently by somebody at Waterstones that something like 70% of all the copies they get in go back anyway. Yeah, very high So returns, it's not right? like you're yeah. competing with these huge uh, numbers anymore. Yeah, no, the it's trick great. is if, if they've still got your book in stock six months after publication, you're doing very well. It's it's not all about that first week. It's about that staying yeah. power. It's getting into core stock. That's the thing. Uh, David, this has been... Incredible. And thank you so much for oversharing. We love it. We absolutely love that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's my specialty. Um, it, no, it's fantastic. Um, what's coming next from you? Uh, is it, Obviously, you've got to finish the Vanquish trilogy, but what else is on the cards in, in the future? So we've got 20 books now in the uh, schedule at Kingsbrook. They're not all mine. Um, there's there, there's what the, In the next small batch that we've got, uh, is a book that I have written about the 80s and about my childhood. But there is a, an author who I've worked with, and uh, she's a, actually amazing, and she's um, a hodder at the moment. Um, and we've written a book together about uh, – it's a kind of uh, princess-led, hard-hitting, fairy tale beat-em-up drop armor. <laughs> it's, it's called The Bad Apple Dojo, and it's about sort of fighting princesses. Uh, in a fairy tale landscape, so we're really excited about that. So after Ilmore, we're going to be doing that, and then we're going to be opening the publisher to other writers. Because, to be honest, I knew I had another couple of books in me, 
just about. <laughs> but with my entire catalogue, plus the two that I've just written recently, I think I've done one Stranger Things book, sort of a, it's a, such a sort of Stranger Things thriller, style right. thriller. Stranger Things meets The Matrix, maybe. After that, I am done. But I would like Kingsbrook to keep going. So uh, that is what we're looking at to the future. Um, children's books, science fiction, fantasy and horror, fun times, that that kind of stuff is what we're looking at. That's really interesting. I, You know what? I don't think an, in five and a bit years of the podcast, I don't think we've ever had an author go, right, I'm going to do this, 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 then I'm, then I'm out. That is brilliant. <laughs> what's... Uh, What's informed that? What's is is it just you've got you know you, you've got a finite number of stories? What's what's uh, what's the thinking behind that? I I always wanted to I, I wanted to learn from Douglas Adams and Douglas Douglas Adams and John Cleese in a funny way. Johnny Johnny Cleese John Cleese John Cleese always said that he only did twelve forty towers because there was only really twelve forty yeah. towers. Yeah. And Douglas Adams, if you look at his entire catalogue, was actually the very best that he could do. I've written 20 books. If, if you condense them all down, I'm not going to, because one of the problems we had with all the big publishers was how many versions and how many parts. I've written about 20 books in total. I'm very happy with them. Beyond that, it would be great to give other writers the opportunity who certainly won't get the opportunity in some of the major publishers or they'll yeah. get lost. So I'm all for opening it up so after that time we need obviously we need to get to that time so we need to get through the next few years fingers mm. crossed the first one's done well i never take anything for granted because it is difficult to sell books yes um yes. but we've been very lucky on tiktok which is just insanely good tiktok is ridiculous i mean i've got a really short attention span so whereas i should be promoting books i spend most of my time doing voices for stuffed animals on tiktok which is an easy <laughs> way to waste time <laughs> But but it has been amazing for books. So if you've got a book to promote, TikTok, it really is the way, I think. So that's been great. But yeah, 20 books and then we'll open it up after all, that. It might be less than 20, actually. I've I got a feeling the secret to your success is glove puppets. That's where it all started, really, isn't it? it feels like it. I love yeah. glove puppets. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you so much for this. It's been absolutely incredible talking to you and uh, let's do it again sometime. Take care. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Wow. You know what, Mark? Mm. David had me at fighting fantasy. I thought, oh, here we go. I, I thought he I, would. I, I, right. I mean, for anyone who's <laughs> listened to this podcast before, fighting fantasy books keep coming up. Uh, we should mention the people again that have not heard mm. of them. They're a choose your own adventure book. Um, and and it's how it's how I learned to really get into books. I really t as soon as David mentioned that was that was the one gateway how I got into books. How David got into books. How my son. How I got my son into books as well. Really, so it's a yeah. weird right passage. But isn't it incredible though that you know a gaming book which comes with you know you come with a dice and a and you have to write in a pencil your scores of stamina. Isn't it amazing the knock on effects. Um, that the, the authors of those that set of books has had on, on people like David that's gone on to have this incredible career. Yeah. Steve Jackson, Ian Livingston, we salute you. They've inspired a generation uh, or more of uh, readers and writers to to check out fantasy and and take you know take a step further. I remember me and my dad used to love them. You know, we we played them together. It's a great bonding experience. They they were terrific. But you know, David, that thing he said he hadn't read a book and had only been pretending to read books. And then suddenly there's this gateway, there's this way in. 
Uh, and yeah, they, they were they were terrific books, and um, they I, the effect that they've had. I mean, you know, best selling authors we know have 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 been inspired by them. Uh, you know, so yeah, they're, they're terrific. I love them. And also, I think one of the really key things about this interview is a reminder to every single author about the power of the book that you write and what effect it can have on other people. And that story that he told about about going to buy the fighting fantasy book and not having enough money and, oh. and then having my heart broke. But isn't it, I mean, we have to say, take a minute and just stop and think about all these incredible moments in our life mm. that at the time they're just ordinary, sometimes, you know, difficult situations like my favorite book, I can't afford it. And then having to hunt around for something. Else. And yet that was a life-changing moment for David that he found Eric by yeah. Terry Pratchett, and then everything changed. Well, funny enough, Terry talks about in many of his books the trouser legs of time. Okay, so you're at the, you're at basically like the crotch. You can go down that leg or that leg, and he, you know, he took the right leg. You know, I think I think David, you know, had such a an incredible break there. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 just these weird little moments that that change everything. I mean, for me, I remember I'd already read some Ursula Le Guin, but I remember LWT had a special book night when I was about 12, 13, and you could ring up and get a free book. You had to ring up a special number and they would send you a free book. And they sent me the first David Eddings Porn of Prophecy book, which and that series, you know, blew my mind and and got me in, got me back into fantasy in a big way. And it's funny these little decisions that you can make. I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to try that. I'm going to try something a bit different. Um, you know, whether or not fate forces your hand or you make a make a decision, they really do make. Uh, they can change someone's life. Yeah, it's super important to remember that as well because we often think about, you know, we think about those moments in our life. We expect there to be some kind of you know, lightning strike from the sky. And then we're like, oh, uh, eureka moment. And yet actually all of these incredible moments that build in our life are always due to very small, little tiny moments. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, like the time I saw your post on Facebook about Ghostbusters or something. And I thought, oh, I'll reach out to Mark and have a chat with him. And here we are <laughs> five and a bit years on having done a podcast for five years. You know, what would have happened if I hadn't have written that email or, or worse, you hadn't responded <laughs> Yeah. market oh yeah um so it's really it's 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 kind of amazing that when you think about the big stuff that happens in our writing lives is always precursored by lots of small decisions or events that happen when we just show up i mean you know what if david that day didn't go to waterstones what if david had lost a pound on his way to the shop and and turned around and went home crying because he knew he mm. couldn't get the book, all that kind of mm. stuff. It's quite amazing. But even more mind-blowing is the story of the dental surgery. I, I, <laughs> I just can't. This reminds me of that story about the book in the um, in Nepal, in the backpacker's yeah, hostel, Nepal, right? Yeah, yeah it's something like that, is it? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It's, it's terrific. Um, yeah, I mean, look... The, the thing, I mean, how do you explain that? You know, it's there's a certain amount of luck, but there's also a certain amount of, as he said, Terry, because he'd been in, emailing Terry Pratchett and Terry remembered him and was able to say, yeah, 
yeah, this is the kid. Go for this kid. Give him a give him a chance. Give him a break. You know. So again, it's that thing of yes, there's a bit of luck, but you're also making your own luck a bit. You're you're knocking at the door. You're pushing. You know. You're uh, you're 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 chancing your arm. And I think the more you roll the dice, well, just go back to Jabra Crombie. What did he say? The more you dance naked in the rain, the more likely you are to be struck by lightning. You know. And yes. A lot of it is about showing up and writing and getting the words on the page, but it's also about getting out there and meeting people and, uh, you know, pressing the flesh and sending emails and, you know, I mean, you know, sending an email to Terry Pratchett. You, you've said this many, many times. You, you know, you emailed Terry yourself. You, you emailed, you know, Tom Clancy and got a reply. You know, it's this thing of just reaching out to people because you never know. You you, you just assume, especially if you're British, you, you just assume, well, they're not going to reply to me, are they? And, you know, sometimes they do. You know, I do. Email me. Not you know yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's true though, isn't it? I think and actually, I think it's a, I think it's a trait. I mean, we can joke about it being British, but I think it's a trait, a human trait around the world. The the thing I've noticed within coaching people, and I've said, have you ever have you ever written a letter? In fact, just this week on the academy, talking to people, saying, you know, I, I challenged everyone on the academy in life coaching this week to actually write to one of their favorite authors and tell them right. why they love their book. And not nothing more than just doing it as an exercise. But then I said, if, if you do get a reply, then, then report back next month because we'll kind of celebrate and read the reply mm-hmm. and show you that these people don't actually get, you know, we're not all JK Rowling where, you know, you hire a postman to come and deliver your sack fulls of fan post every day. Those are, those are one in a million type authors. Most authors uh, are scratching their heads wondering how people, I mean, obviously now, obviously you can read online, but but it's there's nothing like getting a personal private mm. direct email and yeah. and you know and we you know I've, thank you to everyone that writes to us the best set experiment we get some absolutely heartfelt amazing emails so a lot of which we can't read out because they're personal emails that people mm. don't want us to share but um it makes our day and i think any author who struggled through all of those hours countless hours of writing to to hear to get to get a letter from a fan and terry terry pratchett was was quite unique like he you know tom clancy sent me a one-liner reply which was really sweet of him to reply but (laughs) terry pratchett when i wrote to terry pratchett and asked him about you know why what's what what inspires him to write and he 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 took his time like he wrote me like a mega email so when i heard um david talking about it i'm like yeah absolutely like it was he was probably having long conversations with him but he the fact that he took this kid literally under his wing and just encouraged him. And then eventually, you know, through David's persistency, maybe there was something that Terry had in the hand in making things happen. But um, it's quite bonkers. But the other thing about David that I'd love is that he, he and he, you don't often hear this. We hear it from successful authors. They said, I got a rejection. So what did I do? I then, I then decided just to write to everyone else. <laughs> it's this idea of because most people when they get a rejection they're so knocked back and they're linging and they'll go away wounded and retreat to their corner and his response was right i'll just write to everyone else then and went mm. bonkers you know and, and put it all out there that's why what happened happened his persistency and his ability in the face of rejection to keep going yeah absolutely i mean look looking at david's story as a whole i mean it's an extraordinary roller coaster and he did, he did he did get what many people consider to be the dream you know the huge advances the big publishers and then for him 
to just say, he said the book bombed, but it sold 100,000 copies, but that was considered a bomb because the stakes were so high because of the big advances. And, um, you know, and I've always, you've heard me say this before, those big advances can be really dangerous because if, if they don't, they they don't earn out. They can really backfire. And I, David isn't alone in this. He's the only author I know who's been brave enough to step up and say, look, this is my story. This is where it went wrong. But it has happened to a lot of other authors who, if they had been given maybe a more modest advance or, or maybe gone with a different publisher, I mean, we're talking about trouser legs of time, you know, all those decisions that we make, um, things might have turned out differently. But the thing you have to admire about David is he, he dusts himself off, he picks himself up and, and gets back onto it, you know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely amazing. I absolutely loved his story about blockbusters <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the empty shelf. <laughs> to Jean Claude Van Jam. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, just hearing how he tells the stories and talking about you know de- being disciplined for using a hand puppet. I just want to read his books because <laughs> I think the mind of someone that could do that in a in a, in a blockbusters video store, um, <laughs> you know, that will come through and surely in his writing. Um, yeah. It's quite amazing as well, though the, the kind of the, the kind of Hollywood type story of having to hide in the back of the video store because the press are kind of like all hanging around outside. I mean that that's that's pretty unique as an author, isn't it? Because often often authors don't hit the front page of the headlines, you know, in mainstream media. But maybe it was partly to do with his age as well at the time, and uh, obviously yes. the size of the advance. Yeah, he, and I love the fact that he was hearing about this story before he realised he was the story yes. as well. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and you know, he did TV, Richard and Judy, who came up on last week's um, our podcast as well. He did Richard and Judy. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't prepared for it. I, the, the heartbreaking comment that he said was, I wish I could go back and enjoy it. And again, this this is another Mr. D uh thing here which is you know talking about enjoying the moment enjoying those triumphs celebrating them but i guess if you know life comes along with a tornado like this and you're swept off your feet you know can you enjoy it in the moment or can you only enjoy it by looking back because it it can be a real whirlwind something like this Mm. what's also interesting as well is that he said the book bombed but it got a lot of five-star reviews and there was obviously Mm. a lot of great reviews which which in some ways points to maybe the publishers not delivering the book in the right way to the audience. Well, this is the mistake. I think this goes back to the advance. I think this goes back to the advance because that that was the mistake. If he'd been given a five grand advance, say, and the series was allowed to develop over time, I think, and and it was earned out quickly, and earned you know started earning uh, royalties back and earning the publishers' money. It would be seen as a grower. It's kind of what's happening with the Witches of Woodville. You know, uh, you know, sales are getting bigger, and I've just had a thing from my publisher today ahead of next week telling me, you know, okay, this is what the expectations are. This is who's ordered what. What's really lovely is the big wholesaler in the UK has ordered more than anyone. So lots of indie wow. bookshops out there supporting it, which is great. So you know, it's a, it's a, and they've all gone up from the last two books as well. So it's growing incrementally, growing all going in the right direction. So that a publisher kind of loves that. It's. I can't earn a living from it yet, you know, just just from these books. Uh, but it's getting there. It's taking its time, and it's 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 a long game. But those big advances, unless it's what you know, like a four quadrant 
crowd pleaser that everyone's going to read. Uh, then, I mean, even you know, we, we mentioned J.K. Rowling. She got pitiful advance for her, the first book, and that those books grew and grew until you know. By the time book three and four came out, it was mega. But the the first one had what like a fifteen hundred print run, tiny print run for a yeah, hardcover. Yeah, she she came to our local primary school in England where my kids went and did a book reading of yeah. the first Harry Potter book, and then signed copies of the first Harry Potter book to give to all the mm. kids. Many of which would have probably just like trashed them. <laughs> really, now they could be worth a lot. But yeah, it's kind of incredible, isn't it, to think of the two? So the pressure—it's the pressure of the financials having to succeed. It's got nothing to do with—it's got yeah. nothing to do with the book or the author. I mean, obviously, it's got everything to do with the book, but it's how the book's executed. Whether it's even yeah. ever going to be able to to earn out. There's there's an imbalance there, you know. So he sold a hundred thousand copies, which if you're an author is amazing you know, to be able to say I've sold 100,000 copies that's absolutely incredible but if you're dealing with what essentially adds up to about 900,000 pounds in advances then you're out of pocket everyone's out of pocket uh, so you know if he'd been given a 5,000 pound advance though he wouldn't have sold 100,000 copies that's the other flip side to mm. it he might have sold 2,000 copies then the second book might have sold 3,000 and grown from there as the readership discovered him and the books because that thing of funny fantasy. I was at EasterCon and the agent John Gerald was there and he was talking about this whole period when funny fantasy, and I'm using air quotes there, kind of bombed. It, it died. There was Terry and kind of Robert Rankin because Robert is great, but he's never sold Terry kind of levels. So there was Terry Pratchett and that was it. You know, uh, you've, there, there are a couple, there's Jasper Ford and people like that who have done well, but they've still not reached those Terry Heights. You wouldn't be giving Jasper Ford a £900,000 advance. So, you know, the, the advance was the killer. This is the thing. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see all of this change. And you are, you are seeing some changes. I'd love to see something like instead of an advance, the publisher guarantees to spend a certain amount of marketing, which is almost the Bookature model. Bookature... Uh, don't pay in advance, you get 50-50 split on royalties, but they do spend money on marketing. But because there's a disconnect between the sales department and the marketing department in and the editorial department, the editor, editorial can't make promises on behalf of the marketing department's budget. You know, so that until someone figures out a way to do that, when you're sitting at the acquisitions meeting, when you're having negotiations with the agent, if a publisher was able to say, look, we can't give you an advance, but we're going to spend the £20,000 that we would have spent on the advance on marketing, and that includes Amazon ads and Facebook ads and all that kind of gubbins, I think everyone would be much better off. But the way budgets are allocated now, it's it's kind of you give a marketing department, a publisher, a finite budget, and that's what they've got for the year. Most of that is gobbled up by the big brand names who uh, do have things in their contract about you've got to spend this on marketing, got to spend that on marketing. And the other thing that happens as well is once that budget is spent, that's it. They can't get any more. So you could have – I remember this when we had Gone Girl. Gone Girl kept selling and selling and selling, and they had to keep going back and asking for more marketing money. And sometimes it was not forthcoming because it's like, well, no, you've used your budget up. What are you going to do with it? And it's and it's such a ridiculous system. Whereas if it's you know if you're an indie author, if you look at the sales and you think, great, the the money I'm spending on advertising is giving me a, a return on my investment, I will put more into that and earn more back. But publishers don't 
work like that at the moment. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy. It's interesting. It's very interesting. And for people listening to this thinking, what does all this mean? And I remember actually being on the other side of this, you know, before I got my first ever um, advance. And, and it's interesting because the way it typically works, I think it's the same for music, Mark, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when a publisher gives you an advance, the way it works is you don't see a penny of extra money until your book has what we call earned out the advance, which yeah. means the money that they've given you, they've the publisher has got back in, in and they basically got to zero. And then from that point on, every book that sells from zero onwards, you get your your additional cut. So a lot of a lot of um, and it happens in the music industry as well. A lot of um, artists and writers they never see a penny beyond the advance. However, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Mark, but they don't ask for the advance back if the book doesn't earn out or they don't ask you for the difference in what they didn't no. make. That's the risk no, no, no. the publisher takes. So yeah. so when when David got his what 900,000 or million, he actually got that money, mm. um, which is more money than most authors probably earn in a lifetime, yeah. uh, which maybe yeah. has helped him with his next adventures possibly. So there's, yes. I mean, who knows if that knock-on effect might end up becoming a huge success. Yes, but then then you get the other heartbreaking line from David where he was saying he was going to publishing parties and he was like, why doesn't anybody like me? Yeah. And so, you know, you become the pariah for something that isn't your fault. Mm. You know, you didn't, uh, it's, you know, you have the champagne moment, it's great, big advance, yada, yada, yada. But when the book bombs... It's not your fault. It's because of a crazy system that that doesn't always, you know, work. Uh, so, you know, people turn their backs on you and stop talking to you. And then suddenly, if you want to be a writer and no one wants to, and don't forget, you know, a lot of this was in the 90s and early 2000s where self-publishing wasn't really an option. And suddenly you're thinking, oh, my God, I, I can't be that thing that I've dreamed of being. I can't be a writer anymore. Uh, and he, and another heartbreaking quote he said, nobody tells you you're done. And he ended up in therapy, you know, so this is, it's, it's, um, and I know David isn't alone. Lots of authors have been through this and it is, it is heartbreaking. And it's the, it's the kind of the dark side of the dream that, that no one tells you about. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Cause, oh, and obviously on this podcast, we want to promote the incredible journey of all the successes, but it is very important to flip the coin over and say, you know, there is some huge benefits to, to going down that route, but there's also some huge benefits to going down the indie route as well. And, and it's, there's so many, it's so hard to know. It really comes down to you as the individual ultimately. Um, but going into it, this is why this podcast is important, you know, especially think episodes like this where, you can learn a bit about what really goes on behind the scenes. So you can go into it with open eyes. You can actually go into it with open eyes. I found it fantastic mm -hmm. though, that, you know, when you, he, he then went on to say that gladiator boy sold quarter of a million copies. Yes. I mean, so offer, offer three, offer 3000 pound advance. So that earned out like that. Right. Yeah. Within the first yeah. day, probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's super, it's super interesting. It's also really fascinating as well to hear. It's a triumphant story because number one, David's still writing. I mean, most, yes. for, for most authors, they would have just said, okay, this obviously wasn't for me, but it's, it's a real testament to his character that he's, he's dug in, he's stuck in that, that sense of, you know, keeping going and, and mm. never, never saying no. Yeah. 
uh, and now finding himself in this incredible opportunity where his wife's kind of running the publishing uh, publishing company for him. But fascinating as well that, like you said, he has in his mind programmed when he will yes. no longer write. Now, I find that yeah. fascinating. I'm, and you're right. We've never heard that. Yeah. Those words spoken on this podcast in five and a half years. Yeah. And I'll be curious. I'll be curious to go back to David in that on that day and say so are you are you following through with that because there's one thing i've discovered in all art forms and i always say this in coaching i say this to all the musicians that i coach and authors that i coach i say with music i say you might leave music but music will never leave you and yeah. i think I, I i can't imagine a writer ever stopping writing in some form well yeah they, i mean you, you know you look at Macca at Glastonbury, 80 years old, you know, and Macca, bless him, his voice has seen better days, you know, but he's still, because it's it's all he knows how to do and it's all he ever wants to do. And bless him, let him rock and roll, you know, go for it. Uh, the, the, David made me think of Quentin Tarantino because Quentin Tarantino says he's only ever going to make 10 movies and then he's done. And again, people are going, oh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's getting close. He's, he's you know, he's, he's, he's swears he's going to do it. David lives not far from me. He's he's in Ramsgate. So we have met. We met after the recording, and I met Keandra, uh, his wife, and uh, we're going to be hopefully doing a couple of joint events over the summer because you know his new book is out, my book is out. We we I think we have very similar readerships, so we're going to be doing a couple of events together, and I'm really looking forward to those. So follow. Well, I, I'll put a link to David's social media stuff in the uh, in the link in in the show notes, and and follow me on social media as well for for when we do those. Um, but yeah, he's I think he's probably happier now than he ever has been because he has his publishing company because he can put the work in where it needs to be done and not rely on other people to do it. Um, you know, he can build his own brand. He can have that kind of control. And, you know, we salute him. And, and like I say, for all the, the ups and downs in, of his career, there is a happy ending at this. You know, there is a guy who's got the rights back to his books and he's able to tell his own stories again. And yeah. that's all you ever want as a writer. And everything that's coming his way in the future is because of what he's experienced. It's because mm. of that incredible roller coaster ride that he went through. And it's so important yeah. for people to remember. And if you're listening to this right now and you're going through a period of your life, which is like the recession version of, of your writing life or, or even family mm -hmm. life or whatever it might be, if you're, if you're struggling, if you're going through really hard times, you might have health problems, whatever it might be, you know, all of this is fodder. It's all, it's all good stuff for the future because when you, when you, when you can kind of, use that barometer of a really challenging part of your life you then are able to compare it to the really good times that are coming ahead right mm -hmm. and i think that's really important for people to remember because when you're in the depth of it and you're thinking because david could have quit he could have walked away yep he thought well you know i mean there were so many reasons for him to quit i mean he yeah he, he of everyone that we've interviewed he probably had the most reason to just say okay i'm done with this so i've been no stuffed. no one would have blamed him no exactly. one would have blamed him and many others have you know yeah. uh, I've, I've seen it but and actually you know, if, I, if there's anyone listening that has quit because we know there's a lot of people out there that have quit in their mind I mean, not maybe maybe ninety nine point nine percent with this little gap, and they're listening to this podcast right now, and they're hearing David's story. 
maybe you want to rethink that decision. Maybe it's time to get your notepad out again, open, fire up the computer and just see what happens because maybe whatever happened to you that made you quit was actually the nucleus of something much, much better and bigger and beautiful down the road. Well, the the thing that gets me through any hard time is just the, you know, this too shall pass, all right? The good times and the bad times, you know, the, yeah, the, it's a roller coaster. It It's horrible now, but it won't always be horrible. There is always something on the horizon and you just got to keep trucking. Absolutely. Keep your foot on the metal and just keep driving. Absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. And thank you to David as well. I mean, I mean oh, we yeah. say this a lot, but thank you to David for being so open and honest and sharing all of the inner details of what actually happened because it's stories like this for me that really connect the kind of human endeavor and the human story that, you know, the hero's journey to some extent, right? Yeah. It, it really does. So, uh, you know, we, we really appreciate David being so open and honest and no doubt inspiring many, many thousands of people out there uh, who think, well, maybe, maybe, maybe David, you know, if David can do it and he can keep going, then, then so should I. So brilliant stuff. Yeah. Excellent, you, Mr. State. Um, let's crack on with social media. So what's what's new and happening on the, the land of the Twitter sphere and uh, and the like? Loads of good news. Absolutely loads of good news. So let's uh, let's start with uh, Queeve McDonnell, who also writes the CK McDonnell. Uh, he's been nominated for an award. The Stranger mm. Times, uh, this charming man, his second book in, the, uh, in Stranger Times, has been nominated for the New Kid on the Block Award at the Dead Good Book Awards. And voting is open with that. So I'll put a link in the show notes. And there's several guests on the podcast. But in, in Queeve's category, there's him, uh, Val McDermott, the legend that is Val McDermott, Neil Lancaster, Left left for Dead uh, by Joy Kluver, uh, Glenn DeYoung's Curtain Call at the Seaview Hotel, and uh, Richard Osman, of course, you know, <laughs> he's in there too. Um, Richard Osman did a book. Oh, well, he should have mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Queeve, so vote Queeve, vote Queeve. I'll put a link in the uh, sh- show notes so you can, because Queeve was runner-up in the Kindle Storyteller Awards when uh, Ian W. Sainsbury won that. So let's get Queeve over the finish line. Richard Osman, blah. Let's let's make that happen. Um, good news as well. Uh, Jeff White, who writes as GM White. Now, he put in a public declaration earlier in the year to publish the second book in his series, The Royal Champion, on this day. We're recording this on Thursday, 30th of June. Well, he's only gone and done it. The Swordsman's Descent uh, is out now. Uh, He's got a great quote from S.C. Gallen, simply stunning, one of my books of the year. If you love fantasy with swords, check it out. The Swordsman's Descent. uh, Yeah, check it out. Absolutely fantastic. And big congrats to you, Jeff. Uh, Jeff has been such a great member of the bestseller experiment community. He's supported us for so long. Brilliant, brilliant stuff, Jeff. And on the Academy, Chandra Finity, who's a member of the Academy, she's just received a copy edit for a flash fiction piece that will be published in the Oxford Flash Fiction Autumn Anthology. The title is I Am Human. So congrats on that, Chandra. I'm seeing Chandra at the weekend. We're part of a writer's group in Canterbury, and she and her partner are going to be talking about 
pathology and forensics and all the things that, that they get wrong uh, in that, that authors get wrong in books. And I'm going along to, to to talk to them about that. I would love to get them on the podcast to talk about that as well as a deep dive. So that keep an eye on uh, for that in the future as well. And Rachel Howes, another long-standing supporter of the podcast on the bestseller experiment and over on Patreon. Her book, The Porcelain Hand, went to beta readers on Tuesday. She says, I'm terrified, excited, nervous and giddy, just all sorts of emotions. It's been a real roller coaster ride to write, but ta-da! Uh, Rachel also says, I've begun the world building for the next project. It has a name and the story is starting to grow. I'm so flipping excited to write it. I need to wee. <laughs> I love it. That's a reference to an earlier it's episode, brilliant. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, brilliant, Rachel says, oh, that Rachel says uh, she wants to toot my triumphant trumpet to Angela Nurse, who really helped me get the porcelain hand finished. Now, Angela Nurse writes as Angela C. Nurse, and uh, she sent me Bluey, the bestseller experiment bear here, who now sits on my microphone. Um, so, yeah. Uh, congrats, everyone! Some amazing good news there. Um, you know, it, we, it's it is a roller coaster. There's good news, there's bad news, there's good sales, there's bad sales, there's good days, there's bad days. But you know, we're all in it together. Come and join us. Come and join us in the academy, in the bestseller experiment group on Facebook, on Patreon. Where we've got your back. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And it's no, you know, in some ways, it's just reminding of us how our book should be. Full of conflict, loads of ups and downs, loads yep. of adventure, loads of highs, loads of lows. It's just mim- mimicking our lives, really. I mean, that's, Absolutely. <laughs> it's that simple, yeah. really. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Well, listen, well done, everyone, for all of those incredible wins and for all of the wins that are out there that we haven't heard of as well. If you would like to send us a dream declaration, we love to get them. So that is a public declaration, which we will read out in the podcast and hold you accountable for oh, yeah. reaching your goals. It's really good. Look, we're halfway through the year, folks. Like, Send us a dream declaration for the end of the year. Um, it's a very important thing to do. Uh, we've had a lot of people in the academy, actually, which is fascinating, You know, hit their dream declarations and then say, well, what do I do now? And I said, do another one. <laughs> it's like the dream of the dream, we call it in the academy. It's like you build on everything and things get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you get more confident and you maybe set some bigger goals and bigger challenges, um, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with. And it's super, super important to do that, folks. So do send us your dream declarations. And if you would like to get a email each week about the up and coming guests on our podcast, plus the current podcast that's out and what you'll learn from it, then pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter link. And do not forget as well, if you are looking to get the writing habit of a lifetime, we have the 200 word challenge Mm. where we challenge you to write 200 words a day. It's easy, but it's it's not as easy as you think to actually get the streaks going. So join us on that. Pop along to 200wordchallenge.com. And Mark, where can people find us on socials? Social media, we are Bestseller Experiment on Facebook and at Bestseller XP on Twitter and Instagram. Come and say hello there. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, if you've been inspired by David or any of the amazing guests that we've had on the podcast, subscribe on your podcatcher and give us a rating or a review. They make all the difference. Uh, big thank you, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. And yeah, come and drop us a line. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. Send us an email. We read all of them. 
Excellent, folks. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with your book launch. Good luck with Thank your you, uh, with your big uh, YouTube adventures. Can't wait to hear how all that goes. Mm-hmm. I'll be there enjoying it <laughs> along with everyone else. And please, everyone, pay it forward. Tell everyone about the Best Ex- Experiment podcast. Writers and future writers, get them tuned in. Uh, we do really appreciate the word of mouth support. So, folks, happy writing this week. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye.